0: Well, hey, good morning. So today we're looking at this parable, the parable of the good Samaritan. And so right off the bat, I'm sure many of you are no stranger to the parable. This story like many of Jesus' parables are stories that have been uh, that have transcended the Christian faith and they've been widely accepted by the world at large. And so much like the golden rule, or Christmas, parables like this one have been adopted by the world outside the church, which could be a really good thing. The unfortunate reality is that in many of these cases, the world's interpretation often becomes adopted by the church. And it's easy to see why. It's because the parables are these complex, compelling, but concise stories that tackle deep and significant truths they're complex which means they're easy to misunderstand they aren't children's stories but we often treat them like they are but these are parables that were written by a master communicator which by nature requires an intentional ear to pick up on what the author is trying to say a parable's meaning requires work and it's meant to they're meant to be thought-provoking you're meant to reflect and consider and so when they're taken without that consideration and care, it becomes easy for them to be taken out of context. It becomes easy for their true purposes to be lost, and in some regards, that's actually part of their purpose. And in fact, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells a parable and then gives an explanation which reveals in verse 15 that very fact. So in chapter 8, verses 4 through 15, Jesus tells a parable of the sower and his seed and the soils they fall on, which is another parable I'm sure we're familiar with. But in verse 15, he explains that for the seed and the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus explains that his parables and their meanings are for those who hear and hold fast to his word with honest and good hearts and who are patient and who seek not just to understand, but to respond with appropriate action. This is what parables are for and for those who are impatient who just want to know what they mean and move on or who don't much care to consider their meaning or who accept the meaning that someone else gave them or even who reject Jesus and his teachings altogether, parables and their true meanings aren't for them. Those kinds of people are seeds thrown on a different kind of soil. And so this morning, it's my goal to encourage you to stop and reflect on your relationship to Jesus and his teachings and to give you what I think are the right tools for how to read and understand the parables of Jesus. So that by the end of our time today, not only will we be able to respond appropriately and bear fruit in relationship to the story of the Good Samaritan, but you and we will be able to do likewise as we interact with all of Jesus' teachings and parables moving forward. And so this is the first question I want us to reflect on this morning. It's what has your relationship to parables been? Like historically, how do you respond and interact with Jesus and his teachings? For for some of you listening, uh, maybe you've never heard his teachings before, And if that's you, I implore you this morning to listen and reflect on everything we discuss because the story of the Good Samaritan is immensely relevant to you. And for those who have grown up in the church or feel exceedingly familiar with this story, I challenge you right now to walk with me in considering what tools you've used to interpret them in the past. You know, when it comes to interpreting Jesus' parables, there's, there's two really common traps that people often fall into. For instance, St. Augustine in his work uh, called The City of God. He takes this parable and all of its details and he overlays them with the story of the Bible starting in Genesis with Adam being represented and heaven being represented, the new kingdom being represented, all of these things. And he, he, he finds an allegory or symbol uh, for them all. But the problem with that is that this parable, uh, it, it's lost its context when you pull it from the text and you place it somewhere else. And so St. Augustine was so wrapped up in trying to find the deeper meaning of the parable that he forgot to look at the obvious ones. And others, like German scholar Adolf Uliger, reads the parables of Jesus and he believes that there's no deeper meaning. That each parable only has one point and it's obvious and that the details of the story are just a part of the story, and that there's no allegory or symbolism to be found. But the problem with that is that parables by nature are symbolic. Parables are stories about something that reveal something else. Of course there's a deeper meaning. So when it comes to these two methods of interpretation, which style do you lean towards? Do you seek first for the hidden secrets? Or do you find a simple takeaway that satisfies your curiosity? and end your search there. In my preparation for this morning and in my tenure as a pastor and as a believer, time and time again, I find myself and others falling into one of these two traps. And in each case, they have the same shortcomings, which is that neither considers the context to which it was told, nor does it honor the intentions of Jesus who tells these stories or the gospel authors who intentionally place them where they do, in their gospel. And so let's rewind for a moment and look at Luke's gospel and where he places this parable of Jesus in his book. And so, so far in Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus' birth foretold, his birth come to fruition. Jesus Presented in the temple, John the Baptist, prepare the way, Jesus, be tempted and prepared for his ministry in the wilderness. Jesus begins that ministry by preaching in the synagogues, healing the sick, calling his disciples. He casts out demons. He sends his followers out to preach the kingdom of God, the good news of his kingdom to come. And by chapter 10 in our text, Jesus has traveled all throughout the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and thousands have heard him speak, and thousands have seen his miracles, and he's considered a teacher by many. So at this point, Jesus was popular with many of the people, but amongst religious leaders, he was a controversial figure, to say the least. He was even rejected in Nazareth, his own town, and today in our text, an expert in the law stands to put Jesus to the test. So let's look at that together, beginning in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's the background and the literary context to which the parable begins. And that's the first question that we have to ask and answer when we come across one of Jesus' parables. Question one is, what is the context to the parable? In the case of Luke's gospel... Uh, The Lord's coming has been foretold, chapter 3. The year of the Lord's favor has been announced, chapter 4. The good news of the coming kingdom of God has been pronounced, chapter 6. And this message is spreading across the land, chapter 9. And if you're a member of the nation of Israel, this is a radical message. Like the story of God's kingdom coming is what everything has been leading up to from the beginning of your time as a people to the present. The capital P, promise of God that he would be their God and they would be his people in the land of promise forever is the message that Jesus is bringing. So the message that God is coming to make good on this promise for his people is what you've been waiting for your entire life and for generations. And the coming of this promised kingdom and its Lord is what Luke refers to as the good. Good news. That's his gospel. That the kingdom is here and is coming. And so for those who have been longing for that day, this is really good news. But it's also the reason that so many people were skeptical of Jesus and his message. And so our text this morning introduces us to one of those skeptics And the good news that he's bringing. And he asks him a question. And he says, How does one enter this forever kingdom? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so only now do we have that greater context. Jesus has been preaching of the kingdom and inviting people to repent and prepare to enter it. And a skeptic asks him, How does one get into this supposedly coming kingdom? Let's see how Jesus replies, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? It? And the lawyer answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this lawyer, probably a better translation, is an expert of the law, referring to the law of Moses, the Old Testament, asked Jesus a question. And by context, we see that he expects Jesus to give an answer contrary to the word. He's testing him in hope he fails. But Jesus replies with his own question. And actually, this begins a pattern that will take place twice in our text. The lawyer asks a question, Jesus asks a question. The lawyer answers a question, Jesus answers the question. And it will happen twice. And that's important because it's only given that context that we can actually understand why Jesus told this parable when he did and for what purpose he told it which is our next question along our path to understanding. After asking what is the context to the parable in the greater story, we have to ask what is the immediate context for today. Another way to say that is why does Jesus tell this parable? So let's look at that. The lawyer asks, "How do I inherit eternal life?" And can we just stop for a second and consider how massive a question that is? Like how many questions come even remotely close in significance or consequence or scale to how one might gain access to eternal life, let alone inherit it? I mean, parents, how many times a day is your kids bothering you with that question? I imagine not often. This is not in the same category as what's for dinner or are we there yet? This is a massive question. This is a huge question. So Jesus replies with his own. And he says, You're the expert in the law. You tell me what one must do. So the man, knowing the law, cites the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. So that's all. That's the answer to what you have to do to inherit eternal life. According to the lawyer. So now Jesus answers the lawyer's question. Yep. If you want to do something to inherit eternal life, all you have to do, easy, is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you'll live. Which in one sense is true. There's just one slight problem with that. And for extra credit, I wonder if any of you can guess what it is. Feel free to shout it out if you know. Right? Who, who can do that? So Jesus says to the lawyer, good luck, buddy. <laughs> and so this lawyer, well, he knows he can't do that. I mean, listen, for God's people, there are certainly moments when our love for God is there. And there are, I hope, times when we show love to those around us. But if we're being honest, is that how we would generally define ourselves most of the time? And if it is, I hate to be the one to tell you, but you might be a little confused. And maybe actually, you might love yourself a bit too much. Because none of us love God or others like that all of the time or most of the time. Or some of the time. So the lawyer, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, now said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So either believing that he has part one locked down or just avoiding the God of it all, asks who exactly it is that he should love as himself. And only now do we finally get to our parable and why Jesus tells it. And look, I'm more than halfway through this sermon on this parable and I just got to the why. Why? And I still haven't answered that, let alone what it means or what to do with it, yet this is the roadmap I'm suggesting that we all travel down before assuming we rightly understand any of Jesus' parables. Because like chapter 8 told us, they're for the patient. They're for those willing to seek. So if you haven't checked out, and if I haven't put you to sleep, let's look at that why. Why? Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he replies with his own question. And that question begins with a story that we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. So at face value, why does Jesus tell this parable? Primarily, listen, primarily it's just the setup to another question. So hold on to that because that's important. And here finally is that parable, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So a priest, then a Levite, is traveling from Jerusalem, presumably on his way home from his work at a temple and he sees this man, and he passes by on the other side of the path. So a few things. Uh, One, this path was not very wide. It was narrow, and it was windy. So he, he couldn't have missed this man who was roadside. So he's not getting off with that excuse. A Second, he's a religious leader leaving the holy city. This is the equivalent to Evan or I leaving the church and stepping over this man on our way to our car in the parking lot inspirational leadership going on here but this is the scene that we're given and then verse 33 a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion now you have to understand who Jesus just brought into the story Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. They were Assyrian Jewish half breeds who any self respecting Jew wouldn't have shared a meal with. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for people to travel all the way around Samaria just to avoid them. And if you want to know how hated these people were, look back just one chapter to chapter 9 after Jesus made his followers travel preaching the gospel kingdom in verses 51 through 56 when this one Samaritan village rejects the good news, and when his disciples, James and John, they saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? So so get this, track with me. Jesus sends his people to preach the gospel to the Samaritans, and simultaneously, his own disciples, the ones who saw his transfiguration, they ask if they can burn them with fire from above. Jesus says, no, spoiler. But this, this is who Jesus in his parable raises up as the one in the story with whom there is compassion and who goes on to bind up his wounds, verse 34, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gives them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And I think we have to settle here for a moment to really appreciate the significance of the details that Jesus places in this short story. It's one thing to recognize how radical it would be to hear of a Samaritan or whoever your enemy this morning is having some compassion. But it's a whole other animal to hear that that compassion was leading to action and action at this level. You know, I think one of the most common interpretations of this story goes something like this. Be nice to strangers. Or like it, love your enemies. Another, don't ignore the needs of others. Another still, sometimes even your enemies can be better than you. But this morning, before this morning, what has this parable meant to you? How was it taught to you? You know, somehow, I feel like none of these are what Jesus was getting at. Consider some of the details. First, Jesus places those whom this lawyer would assume to be the good guys as simple passers-by. And I don't want to vilify them this morning. That's too easy, and actually I think it's a misinterpretation. Within the law, there were sacramental cleanliness laws, so if a priest touches something dead or something considered unclean, he would have had to perform different rituals before being considered clean once more. And so for him, it would have meant having to turn back, traveling back to the temple where he just probably spent uh, two weeks or more serving without seeing his family. It was a dangerous path regularly populated by thieves and robbers so stopping could mean risking their own life it's the kind of block in the city you're told not to stop in even if there's a sign it's the keep the windows up and the doors locked kind of road and if we're being honest it's actually really easy to see why they didn't stop honestly haven't we looked past needs for less How many roadside flat tires have we driven past, assuming they're fine or they have AAA, thinking that it's too dangerous for us to be on the side of the road? How many people with signs have we driven past because pulling over would be just too complicated or would mess with our schedules or assuming that they had bad motives, we just looked the other way? How many pleas for volunteers or for help have you heard from our announcements? or or for the budget to be fulfilled that we've ignored because our schedules are just too busy or we could use the money elsewhere these men weren't extraordinarily evil they were just normal but the samaritan is placed in the story to be the radical character he's the focus and the one like no other not just a stranger but truly strange because he didn't just feel compassion he showed it And he didn't just stop to see if he was okay or give him some supplies and tell him good luck either. He took the risk to stop. He put him in the back seat of his car, letting the blood and the dirt stain the seats. He drove out of his way, being beyond late for whatever meeting he was going to, not coming home for dinner, but instead getting a hotel room in a distant town for him and this stranger. He pays for it all. He pulls money from his saving account and pays for weeks, if not months of stay for this man who he still doesn't know his name. And he tells the innkeeper to look after him. Whatever he needs or requires, take care of it, and he promises to settle up when he returns, presumably weeks or months later. All for some guy he found beat up on the side of the road, all for some unknown named character who could have been a robber himself. The Samaritan not only takes an interruption for the day, but invest himself into the life of another with a commitment that will stretch far beyond that evening and cost him more money than just a few nights in a hotel. And this is the story that Jesus tells. And then, only after this story does Jesus ask his question, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. And then the story just ends. No response from the lawyer. No more questions or rebuttals. So why did Jesus tell this story? Jesus told this story. Not to tell you to be nice to strangers or to love your enemies, those those are true, Jesus told the story to show you what it looks like to love someone as yourself. This is what it means to be a neighbor. And in so doing, he places the lawyer and you and me in front of a mirror and asks not, who is your neighbor? But are you a neighbor? So this is why Jesus told the parable. Not as an inspirational story to challenge us to be good neighbors. Instead, it serves as an indictment against us because we are not. The point of Jesus' parable is to tell you that none of us are good neighbors. None of us love our neighbors as ourselves, let alone love God with everything that we are. That's why Jesus tells the parable. Jesus illustrates to this lawyer and to us that there is nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. And if we stop there this morning, I I fear that many of us would still be walking away with a better understanding of the parable than the one we walked in with. But thankfully, this parable isn't done with us yet. There's still more to be discovered, and we find that out by asking our third question— and so we, we find this question, uh, Craig Blomberg, it's, uh, he's got this book, Interpreting the parables. I suggest it, but he poses this question, question three, what would I have learned if I was the one Jesus was telling this story? If I was that lawyer, what would I have taken away? And we already started to answer that, and, and I think that's why the story just ends so abruptly, because the point has been made. There is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. And unfortunately, this is probably all that this lawyer gleans from the story that day. But Luke and Jesus intended so much more for those who were willing to find it. For those willing to dig just a bit deeper, there's still one more question to ask. In this case, the next question, question four is, what does Jesus want me to learn from this parable? You know, I spent my week engulfed in this story, and it took me all of that time to come to this place What Jesus wants us to see is not that we should go and try to be good Samaritans, but to realize that we need one. Jesus is speaking to a man who sees him as an enemy, and Jesus tells a story of that man's enemy coming to the rescue with compassion and mercy, with sacrifice and action in radical proportions, not just in a moment, but in a way of commitment and investment in their future and for their good. Church, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a story about how we should be good neighbors, but a story of how we need one, and his name is Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're hearing this for the first time, listen, we live in a dangerous world full of thieves and robbers. So if you're coming here this morning, you're listening from home, and you're beaten down, or you feel left for dead like no one sees you, or worse, that they do, but they pass you by. Jesus sees you, and he's compassionate, and he's merciful, and not only does he promise to heal you and to give you rest, he's willing to carry you to his kingdom and pay the bill and give you that life that the lawyer was so interested in making for himself, but couldn't. And if you continue through the rest of this gospel of Luke, you'll find out how Jesus already paid far more than a few weeks' stay at some inn for you but he paid for an eternity in the promised kingdom, which he's now ushering in. All you have to do is trust that his payment is good. And church, for for those who believe that Jesus has been and is that good Samaritan in your life, he's calling you to live in pursuit of the image that he just modeled. You're called to be neighbors and to love him and to love others in radical ways. Listen, the example that he gives for us is not meant to be an extraordinary far stretch. It's meant to be the template for what it's like to live like Christ and to be his ambassadors Now, how crazy is that? You know, I racked my brain this week trying to think of the most selfless things I've done. And I was reminded of the time that I bought and delivered furniture to a woman just because she asked. Or the time that Laura and I found out about a woman and her daughter who were living in a hotel. And so we and a few friends put the money together to get her into her first apartment. Or the time that I sat with a homeless man at a McDonald's and ate a quick meal. And listen, I bring these up not because it's some kind of brag, but to show you that even my best moments don't even come close to what Jesus tells me it means to love my neighbor as myself. Not only am I not regularly a good neighbor, but according to the standard, I've never been a neighbor. Instead, I need one. And his name is Jesus. So what's the context? Why does Jesus tell this parable? What would I have learned if Jesus was telling this parable to me? And what did he desperately want me to learn as he told it? In the case of the Good Samaritan, Jesus reveals to us the standards of his kingdom and our inability to meet them, but also his compassion and mercy and love that he lavishes on those who are willing to receive it. We can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Instead, Jesus gives it to those who recognize their need for a Savior. This is the story of the Good Samaritan and the good news of a good God and his kingdom to come. The way in does not lie on some path or specific action, but in the person of Jesus Christ, the only good neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us, that you see us in our brokenness and you don't seek a different path or to walk around, but you have compassion. Lord, thank you that you don't just have compassion, but that you show it to us in abounding ways, that you make sacrifices on our behalf that we're unworthy of. Lord, who are we? And yet you make us your children. You make us your brother and friend. Lord, you care for us in our times of need, and you lavish gifts upon us in times of blessing. Lord, thank you for being a good neighbor despite our inability to do so. I pray that all of us in this room or listening from home would strive for that goal, what you've modeled for us, so that we can bring and usher in your kingdom now as you've called us to be a part of. Lord, again, we pray that you would just come and usher in that kingdom in its fullness now. The world needs you. In your name we pray. Amen.